0: Welcome to another episode of the Sacred Changemakers podcast. My name is Jane Warrillow and I have another great guest lined up for you today. Someone I think you're really going to love. But before we enjoy a deep conversation together, I want to remind you why we're here. This podcast, it's about change and transformation, but not just any old change. We believe in change for good, which lies at the intersection of three things, purpose, impact and prosperity for all. We want to encourage you to think a little wider about your own life from your personal and professional development to also ask the question, how can I make a meaningful impact with my life? It's time for us to find a way to live in resonance with each other and all living things. And at Sacred Changemakers, we're here to help to build the foundations of a more equitable, loving and resonant world. So come with us on a journey as we go behind the scenes with people who are making a real difference in our world. Sometimes we'll be interviewing change makers, and sometimes we'll be leading deep dive conversations tackling the challenging issues of our times. But first, a word to our sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by Coaches Business School, the world's leading business training for coaches and consultants, helping them to succeed in business so they can make a meaningful difference in our world. Go to coachesbusinessschool.com to get the tools, strategies and frameworks you need to enjoy growing your business in a way that is profitable, predictable and purpose driven. A big thank you to all our coaches, because without them, this wouldn't be possible. Okay, so our guest on the podcast this week is Karen Lee, Chief Executive Officer of Pioneer Human Services. Karen leads one of the nation's largest nonprofit social enterprise organizations in the United States. Under Karen's leadership, Pioneers successfully operates several revenue generating businesses that provide living wage jobs to mission related employees and helps fund its mission of empowering people who've been involved in the legal system to build healthy, productive lives. Headquartered in Seattle, Pioneer serves over 10,000 people a year through its diversion, treatment, housing, and job training programs. Karen is a graduate of the University of Washington School of Law and the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. So welcome, Karen.
1: Hello, Jane. It's a pleasure to be here today.
0: Oh, I am so excited to talk with you today, Karen. There's so much about your work that I really want to hear about, and I just love our title for today's conversation, which is The Power of Social Enterprise to Address Complex Social Issues. Now, before we dive in, I'd love to hear a little bit about you and your journey. I mean, what is it that brought you to where you are today?
1: It's interesting because you talk a lot about a purposeful life. And I think I've just been in search of that type of life. And and I've had fits and starts with it, as most of us have. (laughs) But at the end of the day, I want to live a life where um, I can say I made. My sphere of influence a little better. For others mm.
0: yeah so I really get that and I I love it when you said you know you had fits and starts with the purpose <laughs> filled life and I think I think you're absolutely right I think that's true for so many of us and particularly I think at this point uh, you know in in I don't know whether you'd call it humanity's evolution or what you want to say but after the pandemic I think a lot of us have been waking up and thinking you know what am I doing? with this life so did Mm -hmm. you have did you ever have a moment like that where you thought okay this just isn't enough for me i need to create more purpose in my life
1: i did it happened to me when i was practicing law so a little bit about a little bit about my history is that i'm an african-american woman so i've experienced discrimination Um, And sexism, but comparatively more discrimination, I think, is a Black American. And I think when you do, there's just, there's reactions that we all have. And um, so mine was, I want to do something about the unfairness that I see. Hmm. And I also wanted to live a life of adventure. So I went off to the United States Military Academy at West Point, which for um, most of us in the U.S., we probably heard of heard of that. And I went in the '80s, and that was a big deal for women. I think it still is a big deal today, but back then it was really a big deal. And mm-hmm. um, and and then and there, you're you're a part of something bigger than yourself. You're attending this amazing institution that is forming your character, helping you become a leader, preparing you to join the um, United States Army to defend our country and our way of life. I mean, there's not too much bigger, there's not too much bigger of a team than you can be on than the United States Army. And um, and that was tremendously satisfying. And um, I really enjoyed my time as a cadet and as a young officer, but I thought, that I wanted to get into law and to fight racism more directly. So I went to law school and uh, after law school, I thought, well, I'll work for a large law firm and I'll do pro bono work on the side for ACLU, um, which is a civil, civil liberties union or some other organization like that. And what I found early on is that, um, the, the people that really make change when on, on issues of civil rights and access to basic services, those folks, they don't just take on pro bono cases. They they dedicate their lives, right, to, to the work. And, and so I thought, okay, I can't really get there through a corporate law practice. So, um, so I tried again. I thought, well, maybe I'll just become a manager and then, and I'll have more spare time, <laughs> and then I could do a different type of, uh, of work. And and I and I joined um, uh, a uh, a for profit organization here. It's our investor owned utility in Washington State, and um, and I really learned the managerial ropes. I, I just had a number of different jobs, and that was a tremendous experience for me, and I liked it a lot and um, and I was doing and then I was having kids at that point so my family was very demanding so I wasn't doing too much side legal work and then at um, and then at some point um, in the early 2000s the governor of the state of Washington she called and and um, I'll never forget it she called me and she said is this Karen Lee I said yes she said well I'm Chris Gregoire, and I'm wondering if you would like to serve the citizens of the great state of Washington. Now, I don't know about you, but when you get a call like that, you, you don't ask questions. You're like, yes and yes. <laughs> and um, and uh, the next thing I knew, I was uh, running a state agency. and um, And that's the turning point in my life where I decided I wasn't going to try to do Good work on the side of a corporate position, but I would try to lead with the work and and have my everyday job be the work and um, and if I have uh, a high quality of life from that, then that just gives me more options. And allows me to be a part of taking care of my family and our family's future. And that's really, for the past 17 years, been how I've approached my way in the world, right? You know, through my nine to five job. Mm.
0: And, oh my gosh, I don't want to gloss over things. Because you said right at the very beginning there, that you experienced discrimination in your life. You you experienced it, you saw it, you know, and and it sounds to me like that was a motivating factor for you on this path that you've taken. And I want to be very honest and say, you know, I'm a British white woman that really is attempting to understand what that means. And it'd be so easy for me to just go, oh yeah, okay, you're a a black African-American. Woman, of course, you've had, you know, you've suffered discrimination and then move on. And I don't want to, because I really want our listeners to hear the the kind of the power that that has had. And I'm going to say also the way you've turned it into opportunity. Now, I don't know if you'd be willing to share anything about that, Karen, but I'd love to ask you about it in some way. I think it's important
1: people hear. Discrimination is so personal that mm-hmm. it, uh, it's hard to, to tell people that haven't experienced it what it's like because uh, I think if I think egregious situations uh, everyone can say that is wrong.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But the microaggressions just the the piling on, the piling on, the piling on, they take their toll as well. Hmm. And so you've got this major, overtly horrible discriminatory action that might happen to a person, maybe to a black person, depending on where you live, that might happen once every three years. And then you've got these microaggressions that might occur several times a day, mm-hmm. and and then um, then there's uh, chances that you don't receive because you're black. Um, so it's this combination of of many things that impact you. I think as a Black American, it's interesting. I was in a a facilitated discussion with about 10 other people, and I would say four of whom were Black Americans. One was a Latinx man and three were white. And the facilitator asked us, they said, tell us something about yourself. And we went around the circle and we all said something about ourselves. The white individuals, they spoke about their family or they spoke about um, they would say, "I'm a fa- I'm a father. I'm a mother, or something about their vocation." Um, the Latinx and Black individuals in the circle led with their race, mm. and 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 to me, that's the most telling part because you you can't change how you. You can't scrub away your, your blackness. There's there's no surgery that you can have to ever get rid of your black skin color. And it's something that people see on site and make assumptions about you. And then those assumptions are rooted in inferiority. And so I think um, it's something that um, you know, we it's just a—it's a burden that we all live with that I wish we didn't have to live with. So, um, my earliest memories of, of discrimination were at the ages of three and four, which would have been before 1970, and they were related to um, not being able to use a whites-only bathroom. So, um, <laughs> I've just there's there's so much discrimination that I've witnessed. It's hard to say. And I'm for a a black American, probably someone who hasn't experienced the depth of racism that others have experienced. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's all personal. So it's hard to go to someone and say, have I experienced more racism than you? You know, it's like saying, is my cold? Am I more sick than you? Um, Where we are both sick. So uh, the question, I appreciate the question. I don't know that it's answerable.
0: Yeah. I don't know that it is either, actually. And, and thank you so much for your answer, because that's the first time I've ever thought about, in many ways, my, my own race. And it wasn't until I came to live in America that I would also lead with race, not from the same reasons as you, but I just love the insight that as white people, it's not something that normally, and this would be true in England as well, it's not something that would normally cross my mind at an identity level to describe myself, really, until I move to America. And then I do distinguish that I'm not American. And many people think I am and they're usually surprised. And And then they they usually follow that with, why did you move to America? Did your husband get a job here? <laughs> Which is interesting <laughs> in itself. So, so that is just like, I can't imagine what that must be like. And I love that you've brought it to the personal because of course it's personal. And I can't help but feel as, as I, I listen to you, Karen, that you must have had the sense that you just didn't belong
1: here. Absolutely. And I don't know if it were as simple as just not belonging, I think it would mm. be easier. But yeah. it's worse. It's it's being seen as inferior inferior or being seen as not smart or being seen as um, not honest hmm. or whatever the negative things are in society, in society that we make assumptions about black people hmm. so if it were as simple and if it were only as not being wanted we could deal with that right but it's it's the It's the oppression. It's not being hired based off your name and how it sounds or the color of your skin. It's not being able to to buy a house, except for in this one little section of town. It's being, you know, it's being denied credit. Mm. It's it's having to to be able to get a job to having to you know outperform your competition to the point that the um, that the hire that the person hiring has no choice but to hire you so so it's it's all of these things it's it's uh you know, is people touching your hair when you walk down the street? It's like, really? Do you have to touch my hair? Oh my so. god! <laughs> <laughs> I can't even imagine.
0: That reminds me of when I was pregnant, and people would come up and just touch your belly. Your belly, it's like, yeah, what? exactly. What? <laughs> it's
1: like, why
0: are you touching my hair? Oh my gosh! Oh yes, I, I can't imagine. And obviously, there's some complexity here. Now, I want to remind you of a, a quote that I'd uh, seen that you'd said because I think it gets to the root of what we're talking about here you said we need to get to the root of why people don't behave the way society expects because everyone can be successful if given the right opportunity and support there's hope in creating safer communities that impact families and generate positive outcomes Mm -hmm. now I loved that quote and I'd love to know what's underneath
1: it (laughs) I think what's underneath it for me is that we human beings are complex Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and let's assume for the second that there was equal police policing and equal punishment regardless of of race gender class so then if 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 somebody committed Act A, anybody who committed Act A would be treated the same. So that's what we're going to assume. Mm -hmm. Act A is something we don't appreciate in society, right? So let's say Act A is, is breaking the window of a department store and going in and stealing clothes well why did that person go in and steal clothes maybe it was because they are a thrill seeker and they're 16 years old and there is a buddy that dared them to do it and they felt that they needed to respond to that dare and show that they were tough 17 year old boys that's pretty common they want you know they they have a lot of adrenaline, a lot of hormones. Their brains aren't fully developed, and and um, they, they have this energy. Maybe the person um, is uh, down on their luck. They have no income. They don't know where they're going to stay that night, so they're going to break the window, steal some clothes, sell them so that they can... Go find, go get money for a hotel room. Maybe the person um, uh, broke the window, stole the clothes because they wanted to buy the clothes to feed their their drug habit. Maybe the person broke the window, stole the clothes just because they wanted those clothes. So you could see there is all these different reasons for this one particular act, and and we don't ever delve into what motivated that person to act and in all those cases but one of them the reason behind that act was completely different than from the act itself one was how am i going to afford to feed myself and how am i going to afford to get a room for the night another reason was how am i going to impress this group of boys that's with me so that they'll think I'm cool. Another one was, how am I going to feed my addiction? Only one individual that broke in and stole those clothes actually wanted clothes. And, and I say that because if, if that incident is treated as a felony, which now gets us into the disparate treatment of people, then that person has a felony the rest of their life. The rest of their life. And we treat that person with the scarlet letter A. Whether or not the person that had the addiction ever gets into recovery and would never do anything like that again, whether or not the teenager outgrows that behavior and um, and that teenager was singled out because they were... Uh, They had brown skin as opposed to white skin. Maybe it was a female that um, was running away from an abusive husband and literally had no place else to go that night. We, you know, we just look at them all the same, and then they get this life sentence of the word, which I don't even like to say anymore, but a life sentence of felon that um, they can't ever... They can't ever get away from. Mm. So when I say that we have to get beneath of a particular act, those are the types of things that I'm talking about.
0: Mm. And what I hear in what you're telling me is that, you know, this is not just a, an individual issue, of course. It's systemic. There's complexity here. In mm-hmm. the way that we've created inequality within the systems that mm-hmm. that make up our society. Mm-hmm. So knowing that is just the beginning, isn't it? <laughs> just the start yes. of the conversation, really. Mm-hmm. Because then we move to, okay, so we know this is an issue.
1: Now what? So for the United States, it gets political. Right. People have been able to win elections here by playing on fear, playing on fear of others. People have been able to make just millions of dollars by writing and broadcasting TV shows like Law and Order and their, law, their shows that play on our fear. So, because we're manipula- manipulatable, ma- manipulatable because of fear, unscrupulous people will use that fear to gain their ends, which in many cases is, is a political position. Then they get the position and then they have to show, yes. I heard you constituents. So what I'm going to do is make our laws even more, more and more, more and more punishable. So as a country, the US has these long sentences for um, just minor crimes that really don't deal with the root of addiction. They don't deal with trauma. They don't deal with prolonged spousal abuse. I mean, not you know, with the racism. Mm. I mean, they just don't deal with that. Mm.
0: So I'm pretty I'm gonna out myself and so I'm very ignorant in in these matters. And I'd I, I feel myself wanting to know like why? How, like how have we got here in this space? Because it's clear that there is, you know, rampant inequalities. And it's not just in the US either. I want to say that, you know, I it also exists in the other country that I've lived in, obviously and is my birth country is England, but I don't feel it in the same way. Now that could be because I'm white and I didn't, I didn't have a lot of black friends in England, really. I have way more black friends here and people from other races here because it's much more of a melting pot. But I just wonder like, is it possible for us to deconstruct what we have? And I'm going to say this: Will the establishment, however we want to describe them, allow us to?
1: <laughs> well, the establishment is decentralized, right? Which is the good thing. Yeah. So um, it's 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 the established. It's not like if you ever watched science fiction where there was the Borg and the mm-hmm. queen hive and Star Trek generation or, yeah. or next Gen, Yeah. You probably did watch it because the yeah. captain was uh, English. <laughs> so yeah, Captain John, <laughs> of course, and the Borg. And, you know, they had this hive mind and the queen controlled yeah. these things. But in the U.S., a lot is decentralized criminal justice. Um, there are some that is federal. There are a lot of laws. That are criminally oriented, that are federal laws, but most are the bulk of people are incarcerated in state prisons. Hmm. So, and state prisons are controlled by each state. And then each state is broken down into counties, and then the judges um, kind of sit at the county level. So, um, and then there are specialty courts like bankruptcy court or something else. So, there's, I mean, so voting. The reason why there's such a push for for, for voting is because that's where the beginning of disenfranchisement occurs. Hmm. So if we can start to re-enfranchise people and allow everyone to vote, Hmm. then everyone has a say in who is elected, who the sheriff is, who the, the judges are who you know who the who the state and local legislators are and and hopefully be able to um, peel back this very very huge onion that has engulfed our country Mm.
0: yes and you said that allow everyone to vote
1: Mm -hmm. Now,
0: I did hear some of the media coverage on this um, last (laughs) year, but I'd love you to explain that a little bit more for our listeners. Like, does that mean that not everyone is allowed to
1: vote? Well, absolutely, everyone was not allowed (laughs) to vote. But I'll talk specifically about people that have a felony conviction. So, and 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 it's different in every state. So I do want to qualify that. Right. But, but in Washington, if you are incarcerated, you currently cannot vote. And um and I think that it initially was considered something along the lines of punishment. You know, here you are. You've committed some act that is uh against the law in the state of Washington and it's punishable with the criminal Tr- offense, you know, a, a criminal sentence. So therefore we want to pull your right to vote to take that away from you. And, and then of course, as you recall, I talked a lot about the, prolif- the proliferation of fear in electing mm-hmm. local legislators. And that means that every legislator Um, would try to show that they were tough on crime if they ran on that platform and they would try to get something tacked on to show they were tough. And so then you saw this escalation of punishment. So the, um, the ability to vote would become contingent on paying off all your fines and fees or being 10 years past the last day you know, 10 years from the day that you paid off all your fines and fees, for example, Mm -hmm. that might be one requirement. And it might take you 10 years to pay off your fines and fees because they're outrageous as well. So meaningfully, people, even if they were eligible to vote, the conditions that they had to meet made it extremely unlikely. And if you consider that one of three Black men have a felony conviction today, um, a, a high percentage of them wouldn't have the ability to vote without changes in laws. Hmm. And some states are starting to reverse some of those changes. Virginia um, was one of the first to to make some changes about three or four years ago. and. We've, had, we, we've seen changes in some states like Florida. This past year, Washington, which is my home state, um, they allowed people on supervision, at least the right to vote. Um, incarcerated individual, individuals still can't vote. So we have a ways to go.
0: Mm, yeah. And I can almost hear, uh, you know, some people that I know saying, well, of course they can't vote because they're in, they've been incarcerated, therefore it's part of the punishment. And what they don't realize when they say that, that is the issue of race that's endemic in mm-hmm. that. And so I, I just think that there's, there's layers to this as well. You know, as we look at not just the, the political system, but also kind of, I'm mm-hmm. gonna say the culture. Mm -hmm. as well that i'm gonna say almost perpetuate well it does perpetuate it i'm gonna say that it perpetuates what is and what has been more than it invites change let's say that what's your experience
1: well don't you think that if we treat people with respect that they'll learn oh yeah How to be
0: respectful? I do. If So this is, oh gosh, (laughs) this is me now showing some of my stuff, which is that I do believe that's true unless there is an imbalance of power. And what I find in, particularly in America, is where there's money, there's power. Mm -hmm. And therefore, what I've also been very interested to find is where there's money, there's also fear that they will lose that money and that power. And therefore, I've seen some real visceral reactions to any kind of change that might increase their uncertainty of will they still have power (laughs) in a newly defined future, for example. Do you see what I mean?
1: Yeah, and I think that also there's power in not being black. Yes, yes. So if a person has always said, I could be down on my luck, but I'm not black because I'm better than that group over there, then their perception is that if that group over there makes some gains, Mm -hmm. then um, there's gonna be corresponding losses. Right. And I I think that that is, and that's, the, that's what happens when you put people down unfairly, hmm. you live in fear that those tables will turn.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yes, and one of the things I've learned through some of the conversations I've had with uh, change makers around uh, the issue of race And I'd never really thought of it in this way before. I always thought as a white British woman, there would be nothing that could happen in this world that would mean I would kill somebody
1: else. Mm -hmm.
0: Until (laughs) I had some conversations with people and realized it's a very human thing to protect yourself and your loved Mm -hmm. ones. And I would go to the ends of the earth for my kids. I would do whatever it takes. So put me in a situation where a number of, for example, black people find themselves, African-Americans find themselves with no access, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: no, no options, no education, no credit card, no credit, nothing. And you've got to still put food on your table. I would do whatever I needed to do to make sure we survived. Mm-hmm. And I understand that now to an extent where, or to the extent that it's possible for me. But I think there are a lot of people that don't think that they, in given the same context, they would behave in the same way. And I, I actually think that that's untrue. So what I'm saying here really, or what I'm trying to say is that I think the context has a lot to do with the why that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And we have to change that. So tell us about what you're doing at Pioneer Human Services, because I know you're really working towards that solution.
1: We are. We are trying to help people live a, health, a healthy and productive life. That's our vision, mm-hmm. is health and productivity for people. Um, so that through their own agency, and their own choice. Right? They can, you know, any, anyone can have the life that they desire. That's what we really want. We just happen to focus on a particular set of people
0: mm-hmm.
1: that have been impacted by the criminal legal system. But in many ways, if you set that to the side, we're like any other organization. You want the people you work for to be happy.
0: Right.
1: So I, I have seen data that, and it makes intuitive common sense to me as well, that uh, a felony conviction carries this huge penalty when it comes to your lifetime earnings. And your earnings tend to stick at the bottom of the wage scale. And, and there's, and, and some of it We don't know what comes first. We don't know, is it because there isn't a quality relation to the labor market with progressive positions? It's hard to have progressive employment opportunities when you're stuck in a prison for 10 to 15 years at a time. Um, Or is it because of an employer's fear around hiring someone with a felony conviction? Or is it that there's a true lack of skills an ability that in part stem from extended periods of incarceration. Hmm. So so regardless of what comes first, what we see is that it's a marker for poverty. So at Pioneer, what we try to do is to counteract that. And we have some job training programs that, um, that are very, very successful. And we uh, help people learn to navigate the labor market, how to talk about their past. We help them decide and find what are their hopes and dreams for a vocation? What type of work do they like to do? What's the path to that type of work? And then we try to match them to an employer that is sympathetic. And and in doing that, we have some businesses at Pioneer that also hire people without looking at their, at, um, at their past. And the primary ways that we hire people, um, one of our businesses is aerospace manufacturing. And, um, and that we call, we call the businesses pioneer industries. And then another is, is pioneer construction. And um, manufacturing and construction, those are really good jobs, because it doesn't take long to get to what we call self-sufficiency, to get to quality wages, where you can live a decent life. And, um, and while that person is, is moving along the wage scale, we also have um, places for people to live because there's discrimination in, in the world against people with conviction, you know, with a conviction history. And, uh, and so those are ways that we really, really help people find their path through our case management and employment services through job matching and through housing on the services side of the house which we're not really talking about today we have a number of jail diversion programs and um drug treatment programs since substance use disorder and and abuse of substances plays such a big part in um Finding finding oneself behind bars, but today we're talking about the social enterprise part of the company, mm-hmm. which is uh, um, our which which is our our, our enterprises. Mm.
0: So, what's your biggest challenge with this work?
1: Our biggest challenge is funding right, the more funding that we could have, the more people that we could serve. It's very expensive to provide basic services such as housing. Housing is exceedingly expensive and it's, it's, uh, it costs money to provide that. So certainly more uh, money is more services that we could provide to help people. And in addition, I would say it's, it's attitudes. We need to change the hearts and minds of Washingtonians to be more forgiving and more loving. When they see that somebody has a felony conviction, every, t- every law and order episode they've ever watched in their head comes to mind. Everything that they've ever heard about um, a violent offense has come to mind. And for all we know, that person never even committed that crime. They just pled guilty because they didn't have any money. Right. So we need to change hearts and minds.
0: Mm. you know as you as you were saying that I was thinking oh my goodness you know there are more people who have more of an education from things like Netflix and stuff than they actually do in school and college Absolutely. so you know it's like how do we change the popular culture you know because I think the media also has to play a part in changing the hearts and, and minds
1: I think the media does too. I was actually talking to a journalist yesterday and, and I asked her about just language. And, um, and she said, you know, we're trying to come to grips with our role in helping people be less tolerant, but, but we, we believe that part of it has to land at our feet as well. So it, it, so that was good for me to hear, but certainly popular culture uh, does not help our situation.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. So, I'm dying to ask: like, have you noticed any changes? Like, and how have you been impacted by the pandemic?
1: Have we no? Well, first of all, I, I'm going to ask the question that I thought I heard, which is, have I noticed any changes in myself? <laughs> and I would say yes. When I first came to Pioneer, this was ten years ago now. I I used to get hung up on the types of offenses. Oh my gosh, that person was involved in this type of crime, and oh my gosh, that pe- person was. Oh my gosh. That was a violent crime, and as time has passed, I'm I'm less and less on type of crime, because a lot of times crime is situational, right. and um, and when you look at patterns of behavior, by the time people hit 27, 95 um, percent of people have moved beyond the person they were when they were younger. Hmm. We know that. We know that about brain development and behavior. And uh, and so if if you're hung up on let's say someone was involved in a shooting. And no one died but some, you know, they 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 put someone in a hospital. There's no reason to be afraid of that same person at 27. So over time, I have been less and less hung up, you know, or curious about what did this person do or didn't do, um, because that's in the past. And, um, and there are very, very few situations where a person is likely to um, to offend again, and we know what those are. So um if we can limit our reaction to just that 5% of cases of people that we have not figured out how to deal with yet everybody else wants to move on with their life. So I would say that's how I've changed as a person. Um it, it's it's not about what they did in 1987. It's about this is 2000 this is 2021. And how do you want to live the rest of your life? How do you want to show up as a parent now that you can be around your grown children? How do you want to be, you know, um, in a loving relationship? How do you? What what type of citizen and employee do you want to be? It's it's more about those things.
0: You know, and as you're speaking, I just get the sense of hope that you must bring to these people because that's probably the first time in their life anybody's asked them anything like that surely
1: well their hope doesn't come from me it, the hope comes from their interactions with with the pioneer employee that's caring right so I just happen to be like the person in the company that you're talking to but we have a thousand employees and um and uh, if a person has been incarcerated and then they are hired as a as our entry level employee at Pioneer Industries, it's called a Tech One, Aerospace Technician One. Then their hope comes from their direct supervisor, hmm. who has lived in their shoes, and you know, and is just running things today. And um, and and it, and initially, it's a little bit like a parenting relationship. you know, it's, you know, work starts at six. You have to be here at six. This is how you operate this machinery. But um, those relationships grow and that, and so it's 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 the knowledge that Pioneer is a safe place, that we have resources that can help you. Pay off your legal financial obligations, um, you know, help you if you have a, you know, if you run into a financial challenge, help you vote. It's okay to talk about your background. It's all of those, you know, we we have places that they can rent if they so choose. It's all of those that give the person hope. I'm just telling the rest of the world about Pioneer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and that they can be an employer like us. It doesn't yeah. just have to be Pioneer. Right.
0: And, you know, listening to you talk, there's so many different elements that go into this. You know, it's not just the job, but they need somewhere to live. It's the housing. There's a complexity here that seems stacked against them without the help of, of a company like Pioneer to really so- help them navigate.
1: Absolutely. That and that's what is astonishing. Yeah. Is that we are as a society, we are okay with making it almost impossible for a person to live a crime-free life. Right. So that's that is the sentiment that I hope to change.
0: Yeah. And I, I just want to repeat that because I don't think I think people need to really hear that. Again, so can I just ask you to repeat that Karen because that was so profound what you
1: just said. I think that we stack so many barriers from people that are returning to community from incarceration that it becomes virtually impossible for them to live a crime-free life and to stay in recovery because it's just so difficult. Mm. And I don't know that that's fair. I don't think it's fair to children who um, want healthy parents. I think we've divided families unnecessarily. I think we've put too much of a burden on schools Mm. because of this.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I do. And, you know, I think some of the coming from a different country
1: like mm-hmm. England,
0: where we have more of a social net that catches people, and we, we draw a line in the sand where we believe everybody is entitled to a certain level of health and uh, kind of well-being. And, you know, coming to America, I think that was the biggest shock for me was that mm-hmm. those systems don't exist here. Mm-mm. And and everything here, it feels to me, runs on money. And if you don't have access and you can't get it, you can't earn it for whatever reason, mm-hmm. then you're out on the street. Mm-hmm. Because it's every man for himself here, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> literally mm-hmm. speaking. So, um, yeah, I my vision would be that, you know, maybe for America or whatever, that maybe there could be some similar element where we decide what's okay and what's not okay. And then we don't let people fall beneath that.
1: I agree. Mm.
0: Yeah. Oh, and I do want to ask you underneath all of this amazing work that you're doing, Karen. And I really do want, when I say that, I mean it in a very genuine way. I really want to honor the commitment that you have to this work. I, I just want to know, like, what's your vision for a better world?
1: Gosh, I think that a better, a better world for me is um, where everyone has the opportunity to live the life they want to live and not be impoverished. I want everyone to have the same health outcomes. So I think that we have to address mass incarceration, which is a part of our vision at Pioneer is that we address mass incarceration and we treat people with humanity and that we work with them So that they can have the life of their dreams. A healthy and productive life.
0: Yeah. You know, when you say that, it sounds so freaking obvious. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It's like, how the hell did we get here? That it's so obvious to me that it's like, oh,
1: really? (laughs) Mm -hmm. We got here through a lack of empathy (laughs) and being judgmental. Yeah, That person dropped out of high school. That person did something X, Y, and Z bad. Therefore, that person should be shunned for life. They get what they deserve. That's how we ended here. Overlaid on um, centuries of, of racism.
0: Yeah. And fear of difference, I would say. 'Cause I do yes. think there's a real, you know, when you, you boil boil it down for me, it's it's a fear of difference. And I, I know this because when I talk to like my dad, um, my dad probably doesn't realise it, but he, you know, he's racist, he's sexist, he's homophobic, he comes from a different generation. And yet, even today, I can't It's like having conversations with him. I just like cringe and I have to say, dad, look, it's okay. I'm not going to try and change you, but I can't have this conversation with you because I don't believe what you believe. I believe Mm -hmm. something completely opposite. And it's, oh gosh. Yeah. I find it really frustrating in my own life with people around me to the extent that now at this stage, I'm really intolerant Mm -hmm. (laughs) of it. Completely. And, you know, it's interesting. I went to an event in in Los Angeles when I lived out there um, called the Black Women Millionaire. And um, this woman, I can't remember her name now, but she was amazing. And so I was in a room of black women and um, there was myself and my friend and we were the two white women. And it was so, we were the only white people in the room. And it was I mean it was so interesting and on stage she she actually pointed us out and said see those two white women there you need to get to know them because you everybody needs a white person in their back pocket she actually said that and I, I was like what and then I was starting to unpack what it meant and talking to different people in the room and different things and it was like wow I hadn't I honestly Karen I had no idea none at all I was so like oh, naive, it was untrue, ignorant, it was untrue. And it was just fascinating to be in that situation, which, you know, is nothing like what you've been through every single day of your life. And I can't imagine it. I just
1: can't. Why do you think it was fascinating to be in that situation?
0: Because I've never... I've only experienced it in sexism I've lived I've worked mainly in masculine Mm -hmm. environments so I've experienced Mm -hmm. it there um but I've I've never had that so I feel it it like the only thing I can describe it to in my own experience is bullying and I had a a difficult childhood as well where um, I didn't feel safe and I was abused and um so I, I know what it feels like to not feel like you belong and, and not feel safe and those kind of things. But to to have it in all areas of life, I can't imagine. Because at least I went to school and I had some friends and I had a teacher that supported me. I found a champion to help me get the education and the access. Mm-hmm. that. that I, and I saw education as my way out of poverty.
1: And mm-hmm.
0: I, I took it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, thankfully I lived in, in England where I got a grant through college uh, or else I would never have been able to go. Now, had I lived in America, I probably wouldn't have got to college. And it's like, wow. Wow. So that's why it's interesting, because I was in a situation where and, and of course, I'm open to this because I've come to live in a different country than my own. And people think there's no cultural differences, but it's huge, the culture shock but I don't look different. So I don't, I'm not, unless I go to the DMV or another government office where they call me up to the counter saying, cause I have a green card. So permanent alien resident, Jane Warlow, please come to counter number two, <laughs> which, <laughs> which I find mm-hmm. very odd. Um, but um, yeah, so to be in a room, to experience a culture from the inside, to see the way that, um, people were interacting in the room. The way that people were speaking and behaving was just so very different to a room of white women. Let's put it that way. And I I just loved it. I loved the whole experience. I thought it was so different to anything. Like I could just stand there and go I have no information on this. I don't like I just, I didn't get the cultural references. I didn't get any of the nuances. And then when they talked about white people, that was, oh, I was like, Oh, wow. <laughs> so for me, it was just very, very different. And I think more more of us should do that. I do. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's not the answer. It's just the beginning, like everything. but uh, i I long for a world where we see each other as human.
1: Yes, yes, I really do. yes. and um, and I think that we just have to keep working at it. So, yeah, um, my my one comment would be imagine if you had a felony conviction, let's set aside whether you did it or not. Yeah. But you have a felony conviction.
0: Mm.
1: If you're a white person. It's something you kind of carry around inside and you have to decide, are you going to um disclose it or not right because you don't know the reaction of other people so some never disclose some do Hmm. Um, some are careful now imagine that you're a a brown-skinned race where there's an assumption that you have a felony conviction yeah so whether you do or you don't you have to decide how you're going to act in this environment if you if you are a black male then and i'm not a black male then my assumption is is that you you have to decide how you're going to act in an environment so no one will ever think that you had a felony conviction if you're in a group of white people right and but if you're in in a group of black people then you might have some you know whether you have a felony conviction or not you've been harassed by the police so you have something instantly in common because i don't know a black a black male that has not been harassed by the police
0: yeah me neither yeah
1: so do you see the differences in that
0: i do i do and i was talking to one of my friends recently about this and so not necessarily about the conviction, but about the way, the, the way that the culture views different people. And um, as a British white woman, I am able to, or I have more open access, put it that way. People think I'm intellectual just because of my accent, right, here mm-hmm. in America. So I get positive discrimination because of that. Mm-hmm. And, I, and we were talking and I said, I cannot imagine what it must be like if that was the opposite.
1: Mm-hmm. Because
0: literally all the doors would be slammed in my face. And, right. and then what? It's hard enough as a with the positive discrimination to feel like you belong in a different country, but, but then add the other pieces in. And it's like, I, I cannot imagine because in everyday life, I mean, I can't tell you the amount of times people say to me, Can you say water again? <laughs> right? When I'm just like, they like Americans love the British accent.
1: Mm-hmm. I think. And they then, associate it with class.
0: Yes, they do. So I can imagine the opposite of being black and female and, oh. And having a conviction, especially if it was for something that was, let's say, situational and not something, you know, I'm not a mean person, I'm a nice person, say. It's like, wow, because I do believe that underneath everything, and you've kind of hinted at this, I believe that, and in fact, I saw some data recently that showed that most, well, we are good, even though most of us believe we live in a world where people would stab us in the back and you know, try and fight for themselves first. That's what most of us believe. But the research shows that that's not the world we live in at all. We live mm-hmm. in a world where everybody, given the chance, would help each other. We would be a community, we would come together and we would, like we do, I mean, in the England, we think of World War II and you know, 9-11 in New York where people came together for the good of all. Well, it shouldn't take a, a, a disaster for that to happen. Why can't we have that in everyday life? But I think it's the systems and the media that perpetuate a different story for us. And therefore, we think we're living in a different world than the one we're actually in. And so mm-hmm. we have so much fear.
1: And then, you know, um, our education system, you know, I mean, our the poverty is so entrenched right let's just say that dad is incarcerated on a 10-year sentence and um, mom is the mother of three children that are all under the age of 10 Mm -hmm. and um, and she's working as you know and she's working but she's a single parent and she's got these three boys That are all under the age of 10 well that's enough to make anybody crazy yeah i know you know how active kids are i probably shouldn't say crazy but it's enough (laughs) to just make you pull your hair out and 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 so kid b the middle child starts acting out in school because he misses his father and he doesn't get enough attention from his mom because she's working extra hours and there's three boys that are rambunctious in the house and then the next thing you know middle boy middle child boy is getting expelled from school right. so I mean it just and 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 so gosh yeah it's like a snowball effect isn't it's it? so it is it is
0: Yeah. it just gains momentum mm-hmm. and by the time it's going it's hard to stop it because exactly yeah yeah I get that Oh, I well, all I can say is it makes me smile knowing you're in the world doing this work with a thousand employees. I mean, amazing, Karen. And, um, you know, thank you so much for this conversation. But before we finish, I want to ask you if there's something you would like our listeners to know, anything that we haven't managed to have time to share, any words of wisdom that you might have just for our listeners, what might it be?
1: For every listener, I would like for you to think of a way that you can become a change maker. If if you own your own company, think about your next hire and maybe open up your hiring to someone who is formerly incarcerated or otherwise disadvantaged. If you don't have your own company, look into being, look, look look into your HR practices and see if you can affect change there. Come to Pioneer's website, follow us on social media, um, pioneerhumanservices.org. I'm sure that we'll have the links embedded in this uh, podcast. Um, learn about mass incarceration. As you vote, ask the candidates that you vote for, um, you know, what's your stance? Why are you running on fear? Let's all join together, join Pioneer, join me, follow my LinkedIn page, join us in helping to change the world. We can always support Pioneer, um, but, and we certainly would appreciate that, but there are also things that you can do if you don't live in the state of Washington.
0: Karen, thank you. Really, thank you so much for coming by the the podcast today. I know our listeners will feel inspired and have learned so much from our conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Okay, guys, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for listening in. And before we go, I want to remind you that all of the resources and links for our guests are in the show notes at sacredchangemakers.com. A big thank you to our sponsors, Coaches Business School, who are helping us to make a direct impact aligned with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, all visible on our website. And if you're a coach wanting to grow your impact, you will need to understand how to build a business that works today. So check out Coaches Business School's unique frameworks and methods to help you grow your business in a way that works for you and your clients and helps to make a meaningful difference in our world hashtag transition team. It's time. It's time to build a bridge from what you want in life to include what the world needs from you. Together, as you've heard us say today, we can make a meaningful difference. Again, you can find us at sacredchangemakers.com and our sponsors at coachesbusinessschool.com. And if our episode resonated with you today, I hope you'll consider joining us. So for now, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening Thank you for your intention and efforts to make our world a better place. Until next time, lots of love.